reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 48. It should be on the screen as well. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors are not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Good evening, everyone, again. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be here as we keep working through Matthew's Gospel. Um, if you're visiting or it's your first time with us, uh, an extra special welcome to you. We'd love to meet you and talk with you after the service, so stick around. We've got supper uh, set up, so uh, come and have a chat. If you haven't done so already, we also have these Connect cards out on the welcome desk, out in the foyer. If you're happy to fill in one of these, it just helps us in being able to follow you up. Um, I wasn't here last Sunday. I heard the sermon in the morning, but I was actually in the hospital because my son Josh had an accident on his bike. Uh, he'd gone to the top of Mount Kembla. Uh, he'd turned around, started coming back down, fell off his bike, landed on his head, knocked himself out. Uh, so we were at the hospital with him, uh, thinking it was a concussion. They did a CT scan of his head and found that he actually had a fractured lateral condyle of his occiput, which is the base of his skull. Uh, so he broke his neck. Uh, didn't do any spinal cord damage, so he's actually up the back on the desk at night. Um, and we're just so thankful that he's all right uh, and he's going to be okay. But it's been a really big week. Uh, it's been fairly exhausting, fairly emotional, we're dealing with issues of life and death, and that's what we are doing tonight. We're four weeks into the Sermon on the Mount. And while it's familiar, over the last few weeks we've seen that Jesus is turning everything on its head. The blessed are not those the world expects to be blessed, but people that we would assume are actually having a pretty bad time. Likewise, God's the God-pleasing way of living is not how most people in our world are living. It's the exact opposite. Jesus challenges us, even on things that we probably think that we're doing okay on, that actually we are far worse than we ever dared to imagine. I'm sorry to tell you, as you've already been warned, uh, this passage, verses 33 to 48, are again an enormous challenge for us. Uh, we need God's enabling both to understand it, but even more importantly, to put it into practice. So will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we want to recognize that you actually are King and Lord. And these words are not words for us to uh, listen to and evaluate. 
and ask the question, are they worth putting into practice? These are words from the king to his subjects. Uh, and so we ask that you would enable us to hear them rightly, uh, work in us by your spirit so that they don't just penetrate into our minds and change our, our understanding of things, but that they penetrate deep down into our hearts, that they change us, uh, that we become the people that you want us to be. We ask this in your name. Amen. And one of the special features of the Sermon on the Mount is its clarity. There's a simplicity, a black and whiteness to all of Jesus' demands. This evening's passage, like last week's, contains a host of confronting imperatives, obligations, the things that we have to do, demands to turn and flee from sins that we assumed we'd already left behind. Do not swear an oath at all, verse 33. Do not swear by your head, verse 35. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Do not resist an evil person, verse 39. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. As we did last week, again this week, we, we hear Jesus' repeated chorus, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He does so not because the law that they had heard was faulty, but rather to reveal what the law had always meant. Jesus is clarifying God's expectations for how God's people live which I think that he needs to do for at least two reasons. Firstly, in some cases, some of God's people weren't interested in living God's way. They were intentionally looking for loopholes that would enable them to avoid doing what they knew they were supposed to be doing. Jesus rebuked such self-justifying softening of God-given commands. To avoid adultery isn't good enough. Jesus says, Get rid of its cause. Not murdering doesn't make you a good lawkeeper. Be completely free of anger. Compliance with the letter of the law is no substitute for holy living. Now, while there were some, some people like that, I think other people were understandably confused by the law. We have a hard time memorizing 10 commandments, let alone 613. But Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount cut through any legal debates or attempts to restrict obedience to the bare minimum. Jesus is revealing the law's original intention, getting to the heart of the heart of the matter, uh, the vibe of it. It's the classic Australian movie, The Castle calls it. But what are we to make of an already difficult bar being clarified to be at an even more demanding level than we thought it was originally? When they held the UCI World Championships here last year, one of the highlights for me was seeing the world's best cyclist ride up Mount Kira. My best time recorded on Strava is about 19 minutes. The best riders in Wollongong that live in Wollongong can ride it in an amazing 14 or 15 minutes. The best in the world casually cruised up the first part of the climb, the hardest bit of the climb, and they still managed to do the whole thing in about 13 minutes. My guess is if they actually gave it a go, it probably would have been under 12 minutes. Some brilliant hill climber, totally focused on breaking the Strava record, potentially could go up there in 10. But imagine 
someone telling me or better still everyone sitting here in the room that you actually need to go out and ride Mount Kira every day for the rest of your life in under five minutes. Off you go, go and do it. That isn't good news, it's impossible. And yet, in a sense, I think that's exactly what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes known God-given requirements and points out not only do they still remain, they're even harder than we thought they were. The Sermon on the Mount is not making God's righteous demands more manageable. It's clarifying that none of us are anywhere near making the grade. As summarised in our last verse, chapter 5, verse 48, he's demanding, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what are we supposed to do with this demand? I started by saying that the Sermon on the Mount is clear, but maybe on second thoughts it's not so clear after all. Does this section demand that we double our efforts to have integrity, that we all become pacifists and excel in generosity? Surely that would mean we're just going to fail on even more occasions than we realised before. How can we possibly obey Jesus' demand of perfection? We're going to attempt to answer that question by thinking through three responses to Jesus' words. Firstly, Acknowledge the law's good requirements. Secondly, acknowledge our inability to keep the law. And then third and finally, look to Jesus' perfect law-keeping. So question, how do we obey Jesus' demand of perfection? Well, firstly, we need to acknowledge the law's good requirements. The background to verses 33 to 37 is that God's people were making promises that they weren't then keeping. With a state election coming up very soon, it would be very easy to stand up here and criticise the typical political promises that are made and then inevitably, once they're in power, broken as if politicians are the ultimate bad guys. But Jesus' primary target is not lying politicians, it's people just like you and me. Oaths in verse 33 are not the, God, I promise if you rescue me, I'll come to church every Sunday type promise. This oath was something that God had instructed Israel to do in the context of worship at the temple, but it was also being done in the heat of the moment. Some people, having made the oath, later backed down on a technicality, claiming that the words that they had used meant that the promise didn't actually need to be kept. What a farce, says Jesus. It's not saying pinky promise or swearing on your grandmother's grave that ensures that what you say is true. As God's people, we are to say what we mean and mean what we say. Anything less than that is a lie. Based on this verse, some 16th century Anabaptists refused to place their hand on a Bible when testifying in court. It's how they understood this to mean you've just got to say yes or no. And yet even without debating whether we should ever use the words I promise, Surely the clear application is that being people of integrity in all areas of life is an absolutely beautiful thing. It is good not to back out of obligations just because keeping them starts to get hard. It's beautiful when we don't give, on relation, give up on relationships simply because they're causing us some pain. It's God-honouring when we pray for the people that we say we'll pray for 
when we hold to the commitment we've made to give sacrificially, when we go to our kids' performance, even when a work commitment comes up, when we keep turning away from the sin that we confessed and repented of. It is not always easy, but the rightness of integrity, the beauty of someone's walk, always matching their talk, is obvious. It's exactly how we want people to interact with us. Now, I think likewise, verses 38 to 42 reveal further good expectations. The lex talionis of verse 38 is a famous summary of Middle Eastern justice. But while we might think just uh, consequences matching the offence sounds barbaric, at the time it was actually a very generous limiting of revenge. Jesus is pushing us to forego what we can get out of the law and instead to be gracious. Don't demand justice. Turn the other cheek. If someone requires payment, give them more than they're owed. Don't evaluate the validity of requests. Just give to everybody who asks you. Now, I think it's pretty easy to imagine just how amazing it would be to be on the receiving end of that kind of behaviour, to be treated better than anyone else treats us, to get even more than we've asked for, to have people not just giving charity but offering themselves in relationship with us. We normally speak of pacifism with regards to those who refuse to go to war, but Jesus shows that pacifism doesn't begin when an enemy army attacks us or our allies, but when someone encroaches on our rights, then we've got a choice. The law lived out well is willing to bear the cost, to suffer unjustly. But Jesus is still not finished. Have a look at verses 43 and following. Tolerance is a bit of a buzzword these days. Live and let live is not unique to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want us to simply not retaliate, as verses 38 to 42 require. He demands that we go the next step and actually love those who hate us. Rather than not merely responding badly, we have to actively seek the best for those who oppose us, those attack us, those, those who hate us. Now, you may be fortunate enough to have no enemies, but imagine again that as an enemy, you don't receive hate in return for your hate, but loving concern instead. That when you mistreat someone, they go out of their way to look after you. That a person you've hurt would pray for you to be blessed rather than to be punished. I think that kind of response would stop anybody in their tracks. And while in some ways it's a, a new kind of expectation, understood rightly, it was actually always there in the law. Psalm 119 is an extended song praising the beauty of the law. It's one of a number of Old, Old Testament reflections that just say, how good is your law, God? And Jesus, by speaking the way that he does of integrity, pacifism, generosity, love, paints a picture of how lived law really is beautiful. In fact, it's awe-inspiring. And so to acknowledge the law's requirements is not a tedious duty, but to stand enthralled by the beauty of a work of art. To understand perhaps for the very first time that law is not merely a list of do's and don'ts, but God's extraordinary way of living that treats others better than they deserve, that covers the cost of wrongs, 
that goes far deeper than mere regulations and describes life that's consistently and sacrificially prioritizing the other over the self. If nothing else at all, the Sermon on the Mount helps us be perfect, firstly by showing us how extraordinarily beautiful God's law actually is. It is designed to take our breath away. But I think, sadly, rather than its beauty, we are much more used to the condemnation the law brings. It's been helpfully noticed that God's word is like a mirror. Whether we look at the law given through Moses or law clarified by Jesus, the first thing that we usually see in the law is where we fall short of perfection. And so in point two, I want us to explore how that is actually a really, really good thing. How do we obey Jesus' requirement to be perfect? Well, by acknowledging our inability to keep this perfect law. On our first look through verses 33 to 37, we focused on the positives, the the joy of others acting towards us with integrity, the, the beauty of people's walk matching their talk all the time. But I think it's just as important for us to acknowledge our lack of integrity put in such a clear way by Jesus, it's it's right to see and acknowledge where we frequently miss the mark by not having integrity. While I might not be one who makes a promise to God and later backs out on a technicality, how often am I tardy in doing what I said I would do? I turn up late for meetings. I forget to hang out the washing all the time. Something more important crops up and I excuse the fact that I can't keep the promise I made because something more important's come up. It's not technically breaking, breaking an oath to God, but aren't I, as I do these things, guilty of saying yes but then doing no? While we want to be treated by others with integrity, far too often it doesn't describe us. If you think those verses were hard, verses 38 to 42 aren't any easier. As we heard last week in Mark's very memorable illustration of the preacher being goaded until he punched his antagonist, God's people sometimes will very patiently turn the other cheek. But what about the other, other, other cheek? I'll reluctantly let an impatient driver cut me off, but boy, I feel delight when he gets cut off further up the road. I do let people slander me, but then I'll quietly take their offence to a higher authority to get it dealt with. When was the last time that I set aside time to pray for that person who has it in for me, asking for God's blessing in their life rather than justice for my situation? How much do I pray positively for those seeking to introduce their queer agenda into schools? rather than that God would shut down their wickedness. I am not the shining example of someone who prays regularly that God would bless Kim Jong-un or President McGarvey or Putin. As I look into the better law given by the better Moses, I'm repeatedly confronted by the guilty verdict that I'm not anywhere close to displaying the pacifism that the law demands of me. Even if somehow I manage to control my words or my actions in a particular situation, if I'm honest and use Jesus' standards, 
I know that even then my thoughts condemn me. In fact, worse than that, my reaction is far more likely to be that I question the goodness of the law. Does verse 39 mean that Jesus is a misogynist, condoning domestic violence? Is that what he means? Verse 42 on the surface seems to clearly say that when the drunk who wants money, hard-earned money from me to go and waste on alcohol or the, the, ch- the charity cold calls me on my phone, there's never a time, according to verse 42, when I can refuse. But surely there has to be a limit to obedience, otherwise it just becomes nonsense, doesn't it? Even if I agree with the goodness of the law, still I don't do it. I want to be able to love my enemies, to pray for those that persecute me. But no matter how hard I try, it's just not the response that comes. Jesus is absolutely spot on. Verse 46. Who do I actively seek good for in practice? Well, my family, my friends, people that I'm connected with. I don't consciously do it with the intention that they'll pay me back later, but the relationship that we have leads to my concern for them. And I think my lack of relationship with others can facilitate me being indifferent towards them. But Jesus' clarification of the law here in the Sermon on the Mount means that when that nameless guy outside of Woolies asks for money, my lack of cash doesn't justify or excuse my lack of care. Tim Keller wrote, It is not only wrong to directly exploit and trample on the poor, to even simply have no concern for the poor, to just fail to pay attention to their needs, is wicked. When I limit who my neighbour is, it's not a lack of love. Jesus says that it's hate. In light of this, when I hear, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, I have to acknowledge that I'm not a good law keeper at all, let alone a perfect law keeper. Jesus, your sermon has shown me that I'm further from the ideal than I even thought I was. And it's right and good for us to acknowledge our faults, our inability to live this beautiful way, because it's true. None of us can do it. So so what are we supposed to do? If the law is beautiful, but my doing of the law is anything but, what should I do in response to such clear demands for integrity, for pacifism, for, for love of enemies? Well, our third and final point, look to Jesus' perfect law-keeping. How do we keep Jesus' command to be perfect? Look to Jesus' perfect law-keeping. I think one of the very best things that come out of working through a book verse by verse is that we are much more likely to remain aware of context. Taken on their own, verses 33 to 48 are an impossible ideal that none of us can ever meet. Rather than inspiring us to live more beautifully, they expose the ugliness of our consistent law-breaking. Now, we could make them an aspiration, set a goal to, to be working even harder towards achieving them, but Jesus has already shown us that that change has to take place deep inside of us. And I think that's where context is the key. Right back at the start of the Beatitudes that we're all memorising, we're told that blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. While acknowledging our lack of law-keeping might seem at first like a point of embarrassment, chapter 5 verse 3 tells us that it is the necessary starting point. It is only if and when we admit that we are spiritually bankrupt that we can receive the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. So rather than comparing ourselves with others and seeing our attempts at integrity as somehow winning God's favour, the poor in spirit acknowledge that even when we get it right on the outside, there's probably still some hidden devious motive driving us to behave that way. When we don't retaliate, we will still acknowledge that, that deep down inside, I still really wanted to, and that makes me just as guilty as if I'd gone through with slapping them. Admitting our inability to love that one who has hurt us so deeply, no matter how much we try to, isn't defeat. According to the Sermon on the Mount, it's the starting point for receiving divine help. To acknowledge the truth that we are spiritually poor, to admit our infinite need. But we don't stop there. It's not intended to leave us wallowing in despair for for how bad we are. Like me, looking at those elite cyclists riding up Mount Kira, our next step that we have to take is to look at Jesus doing the very things that the law demands and being awestruck by his ability. Back in chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfil it. And as we read on in the Gospel, we'll see that he does absolutely everything that he says he will, even the hard things that we would turn away from when push comes to shove. The Sermon on the Mount very much is not, do as I say, Jesus does exactly what he says. He perfectly meets the full requirements of the law. And not even just superficially, but the very heart of them, fully and consistently rightly summarized, rightly summarized as perfectly. In obedience to the law, he always says what is true, because truth is who he is. He doesn't ever mislead. He doesn't overpromise. He doesn't underdeliver. As the ultimate pacifist, he allows himself to be beaten, spat on, and a crown of thorns forced down onto his head. Rather than retaliate, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he goes to his death without complaint. At the point of hate, spilling over into literal murder, Jesus pays back with love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While hearing the beauty of the law described in words is one thing, seeing it done by Jesus takes it to another level. Jesus has perfect integrity. He never retaliates. He always loves. The contrast with us couldn't be more complete. When we've recognised our spiritual poverty, it's even easier to then stand in awe of the perfect law being perfectly kept by Jesus. And while he is an example to us that we should seek to emulate, far more foundationally, he's a substitute who keeps the law perfectly for us. His perfect righteousness in an utterly different realm to the Pharisees is credited to us who have faith in him. Which, please hear me very carefully to be absolutely clear, 
does not excuse us in ignoring the imperatives. Though we're saved by grace, we still need to go away from here tonight and meditate on integrity, to think about what God expects of our words, our finances, our parenting, our use of the internet. But as we do that, as we meditate on those things, it should drive us firstly to our knees in repentance for all the times we've failed. And then it's worthwhile staying there on our knees longer in prayer, asking for help to say what we mean and mean what we say in all aspects of our life. Because we will continue to fail in our treatment of others, therefore it's right to meditate, to to reflect deeply on non-retaliation, the beauty of treating others as we would like to be treated. And that will again motivate, motivate confession of the times when even our best attempts at pacifism have covered up our desire for revenge. We can likewise give a lifetime to, to contemplating love, given freely by us, not just to those who love us, but even more so to those who treat us the exact opposite of that. Surely such reflection will drive us repeatedly back to Jesus, the only one who does this perfectly, and the one who says, Come, come and do it with my enabling. I've set you free from trying to do it on your own. Now you can have integrity. You can not retaliate. You can love in a way that you never could have done before. Come, walk my way with me, enabled by the righteousness I give to you by faith. As <clears throat> excuse me, as you've heard, broken necks are a bit of a theme in my life at the moment. For those of you who don't know the guy on the screen, his name is David Dietz. He's the principal of Smith Hill Public High School. Uh, he was also in a bike accident five weeks ago yesterday uh, and broke his neck at C5. He was left with a spinal cord injury, which means that he's a quadriplegic. Uh, he won't, according to any of the rules of medicine, ever walk again on his own. If I told David, come on, David, get up, go and walk, it would be worse than nonsense. It would be cruel. And yet I think that we have to understand that if Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is more than an inspirational talk telling us to try harder, the demand for us to be perfect sounds a lot like that talking to David. But Jesus knows that we can't walk the life he's telling us to on our own. He never expected us to. So come, walk in his power. And let's not just aspire to live better lives. Let's receive his perfection and walk in it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are strong words. Strong words of incredible demands, demands that us left to our own efforts are impossible to fulfill. And yet these are not just impossible ideals, pie in the sky. This is the reality that you have made possible because you lived perfectly according to the law and your righteousness is made available to anyone who will acknowledge their spiritual poverty and say, Jesus, rescue me. I can't do it, but you've done it for me. Lord, help us to be people 
that stop pretending, that stop thinking that our good is good enough. Instead, help us to recognize that we're not good. We're actually terrible. And yet you are perfect and you've offered us your perfection in place of all of our wrong. Please help us to trust in that alone. Whether we've been trusting in that for 50 years already or we're still asking that question, please, Lord, enable us to trust only in you and then to go and walk in the perfection you've given us. We ask this in your name for your glory. Amen.